This is David and David on Real Estate. Join us as we explore the ins and outs of the real estate market and dive deep to understand the issues affecting buyers, sellers, investors, and businesses. If you love real estate as much as we do, sit back, relax, and gain an insider's edge to the exciting world of real estate. David Gorski is a broker and the owner of Sutton Summit Realty, a boutique brokerage providing guidance to over 180 realtors. And David Corman is a partner at Corman's LLP, a boutique law firm focusing on residential and commercial real estate transactions with offices located in Toronto, Mississauga, and Markham. Good morning, David. Good morning, David. Great seeing you again, and uh, good morning, everybody, to all our listeners, and welcome to our second podcast. And today we uh, we have some really exciting topics to get into. Yep, uh, it's amazing how much goes on in a week in this industry. Uh, you know, it seems like we did the last one yesterday. It was a week ago, and there's been so many transactions, and so many questions, so many issues. So we're going to cover some of that today. But you know what's happening? Give us a, a market update. What have you found in the last week? How how things changed? Yeah, and and this is uh, this is going to really lead into some of the hot topics that we have to discuss today. But the numbers are really really interesting, and what they're really pointing to is they're pointing to a little bit of a slowdown. So um, we're seeing the number of showings uh, decline month over month. And uh, we're seeing the numbers of offers decline by 18% from uh, March till, uh, till today. Now we are only in the 21st day of the month, but what the uh, software I'm looking at is looking, it's looking at the total months, the total days compared from last month to this month. And the number of offers is down 18%. Now, and what that's leading to is the average price is also down um, from one million two hundred eight thousand in uh, in Mississauga. It's down to one million one hundred ninety three thousand. So not a big decrease, but we are starting to see signs um, where buyers are just taking a little bit more time, a little uh, offering less on properties, and it is having a slight impact on price. And are you finding that, that more, uh, more sales have come, come up, like more volume in the market? There's more properties coming online as usually happens this time of year. Is that affecting some of this? Absolutely. So 5% more listings month over month uh, um, up to the day. And when you compare it to um, a year ago, we, we have quite a number. It says that we're up... Uh, quite a bit for, for new listings from, uh, from last year. So, I mean, it is definitely impacting uh, our market in a big way. And I mean, I think the stay at home order as well is impacting, you know, people are staying home a little bit more and not going out as much. So, um, you know, we are seeing that numbers drop in terms of showings in terms of number of offers as well. Yeah, I think people are being cautious. I think there's still some excitement out there. People want to make the moves and they're just going to, they're not putting it on hold necessarily. They might be putting it on pause to some extent, wait a week or two and see what's going on. But on our end, we're still involved in many multi-offer situations where we're being asked to review status certificates in advance because people are going in and there's multi-offers coming and they want to go in without conditions. 
um, you know, and, and still going in with offers without inspection conditions and things that we talked about last week. So we're still seeing that. Uh, we don't, I don't know if we felt the slowdown in, in our office because we're, we're, there's still a lot of that going on. Overall, I, I, I can see that it, it might be slowing down a little bit. But, I, but I'm expecting that it'll probably be a pause and not a real hold because we're, you know, April 20, when we're in the late part of April, uh, you know, other than the fact that it's snowing today, there's, it's spring and people are generally out there and want to make moves in the spring. hundred percent. And I think uh, as soon as the government lifts the stay at home order and the nicer weather comes, I think we're going to see a, a large um, move towards, um, you know, looking at properties and making offers, but it, it also has to do with the price range as well, right? Like we're in the Mississauga market and the st statistics I have given you are just for the Mississauga market. So when your average price is over $1 million, um, you know, people tend to take their time a little bit. When you're looking at the condo market in Toronto, it's a completely different price point and there's a different level of competition as well for those types of properties. Yeah, that's that's a great point because uh, you know we we tend to sometimes think of the GTA as one big right area and, and and everything is the same throughout the GTA, but it's really made up of so many smaller markets. Even when you break down Mississauga, uh, it, you know you can't say all of Mississauga is doing this or that. It, you got to look into the different areas, and some are hot and some are, are not as hot. So I know you do that all the time in your analysis with your agents and. And, and people are farming different areas and everything. But, uh, you know, as a general common, GTA is always strong overall, but you oh, got to break it down inside and see what's really going on in the different neighborhoods. Right. And I mean, I, I have to again preface when, when I say slowing down, I mean, it's still a very, very strong seller's market. Like the absorption right. rate is, is completely on, you know, the whole seller side. But, you know, we're not seeing 26 offers in the listing anymore. Now we're seeing three or four offers in the listing. You know, prices are still holding. But again, we're not seeing that, that crazy frenzy that we saw before. Yeah, so it's taken a little bit of pressure on the, the, the poor real estate agents that are running around with buyers. And, uh, you know, 26 offers, only one's going to be successful. Those other 25 people have to go find another property. That's... Uh, that's a lot of pressure on buyers and a lot of pressure on the agents running around with them. But, you know, to keep prices up, all you need is two people bidding on a property and, uh, and, it, and it still keeps the, the prices getting pushed up. 100%, uh, 100%. And, you know, it really becomes an emotional decision at that point, right? Um, logically, when you look at uh, a multiple offer situation, um, you, you know, when, when you approach it from a logical point of view, um, you know, there's, there's boundaries, there's ceilings, there's, there's lines that people draw in the sand that they don't cross. As soon as somebody gets emotionally attached to a property, you know, all those boundaries, all those ceilings go out the window. People want to win. They want the property. And, and that's where we see um, some of the price volatility that we've seen. Yeah. And, and then it, it leads into pressures too on buyers to waive conditions about home inspections, uh, not have home inspections, uh, rely on home inspections done by a seller if they if they can, and that puts a whole other level of, of pressure on them. 
And I know you, you experience, I know you get agents calling you all the time saying, you know, is this the right clause? Is this the right wording we should have? Can we waive it? Should we not waive it? You know, what are you telling them to do? Yeah, I mean, uh, wherever possible, you know, home inspections are absolutely critical. You have to do a home inspection. This is the largest investment of your clients' uh, lives. And, you know, there are so many moving parts to uh, how a home is, uh, is constructed. And, and some of the issues that, you know, buyers can experience are, are extremely costly. So our number one job is to protect our, our clients, right? And the best way to do that is to make sure you have the right team of professionals surrounding you and make sure you have a, a home inspection done so your buyer has all the information at their fingertips to make the right decision. And, and, and there's a lot of decisions to be made. Like, for example, if there's mold in the attic, and you're involved in a multiple offer situation and your price ceiling is this, well, maybe your price ceiling comes down by uh, $10,000 because you need to deal with the mold issue. Right. Right. So it's all about empowering your buyer and giving them the right information so they can make the right decisions uh, for their particular situation. And then what are you telling a buyer after they've had an inspection and, they, and there's something they're just not comfortable with? And they're thinking it's not it's not just about the additional cost that might be to fix something, but something just not comfortable buying a property where a certain work has to be done and they want to pass. They want to get out of the deal. Can they get out of the deal? Yeah, great question. Right. So um, we had a recent situation where one of our list, uh, agents listed a beautiful home in South Mississauga and where the seller was strictly uh, meticulous in, in maintaining the home and they had some water issues in the basement. So this particular seller hired a very reputable company to uh, fix all the water issues and um, it came with a lifetime warranty. Now we had a conditional offer on home inspection and the buyer's home inspector uh, found that there is high um, um, moisture readers and moisture readings in the basement uh, um, in that particular area where it's repaired. Um, now the um, the listing agent put him in touch with the waterproofing company. The waterproofing company assured them that the job was done correctly, that there's a lifetime warranty, that the lifetime warranty is fully transferable to the new owners, but the buyer still felt uncomfortable and wanted to um, go ahead and cancel the deal and back out of the transaction. Now, really interesting situation, David, because our seller felt that um, because they spent so much time and effort fixing the issue and because it came with a lifetime um, warranty that the buyer was acting in bad faith. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on that? Well, it's an interesting topic. Uh, I just attended a, a couple of days ago an annual law society conference, and one of the speakers' uh, topics was just on this issue. He's a, a litigation lawyer. He was, you know, came back with uh, you know, that. You know, that's what the discussion was because, you know, generally in a contract you're going to have language in your inspection clause that it's going to be, you know, it's in this in the buyer's discretion and the buyer's sole and unfettered discretion and the buyer's sole and absolute and unfettered discretion. So on the face of the contract, your agreement for itself, it seems pretty clear the buyer can get out for whatever reason. Right. But the law doesn't really interpret it that way. You know, that there's great weight 
provided to the wording in a contract like that, but there's also a duty of good faith. Right. That's imposed, upon, imposed upon a buyer. Right. So if they have a clause like that, it's clear if the buyer had a clause like that so they can get out for anything and they never did an inspection or did a, you know, a not complete inspection and just looking for a reason, they're not acting in good faith. And even though they've got the strict language in the contract, they're not likely to succeed and get out of a contract like that. Okay. But if a buyer, you know, did go through the full process and is really not comfortable with what they find, it really does come down to a subjective test. And, and what the buyer's comfort is. It's not what most buyers would be happy with. It's what this particular buyer, and some buyers might have an appetite to go in and they'll take their chances. And they don't care about the moisture reading and they might spend some money or they might be a fixer up for themselves and they might put it in, they're fine with that. But for somebody else that, that might be beyond their comfort level. And if they've acted in good faith by, by checking things out and having inspected, having tested, then the court would likely uphold their decision to back out of the deal, okay? But it becomes a question of fact on each particular case. You know, what did they really, really do? Right, so it's a subjective test. It's a subjective test. Yeah, subjective really. Test. So in this particular case, there was a substantial deposit and, you know, the market did shift a little bit, especially in this region where, um, you know, houses in this particular range were selling for $2 million and this particular house was, was listed about $400,000 cheaper. Um, and then, you know, these particular sellers did feel a big shift in the market in that uh, neighborhood. Um, so they relisted the house for sale. They hung on to the deposit to see what amount of the damages would be between the offer that they accept and the new offer. And it ended up that there was a $10,000 difference. So after some uh, more discussion with uh, the other agent, um, they ended up releasing the full deposit back to the original buyer and just moving on. But very interesting situation in, in the fact that um, if the seller suspects that the buyer is trying to rescind or cancel the contract because the market is shifting and they do suspect bad faith and they are fully within their rights to hold on to the deposit, um, there is an anticipatory breach where a mutual release was sent by the buyer agent. So, I mean, it, it, um, they, they are allowed to resell the property and um, the deposit from the original buyer gets tied up in litigation. Right. Well, I think you got a great result on that particular example. The fact that they managed to set up the fact there was a decision to give back the deposit in this market, I think makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, there's the law and then there's the practicalities. And, you know, I generally give advice on the law, but we always have to be mindful of practicalities too. And, you know, are people trying to buy a house or are they trying to buy a lawsuit? And if you've never been through the legal process of going through a lawsuit, it's not, it's not a lot of fun. Even no, if you're on the right side, even if you ultimately win, it's a, not a lot of fun. It takes a lot out of you emotionally. It takes, it, it drains you. Uh, there's uncertainty to it. It's, it's an expensive process. So if you can, anytime people come to a reasonable settlement, I think it's a great idea. Now, you know, tying up a deposit, you know, is potentially a, a really hard, um, hard thing for a buyer to overcome. 
Okay, so if a buyer is not acting in good faith and the seller says, you know, you weren't acting in good faith and I'm not letting you out because I don't know what I'm going to sell this property for. I'm hanging on to your deposit because the real effect to a buyer in the short term is they can't use that deposit money to, to put down on the next house. So they might find their dream house two days later somewhere and they can't, they don't have access to that money. They don't have their deposit money. So now they have to go to court they got to initiate the process to try and get the money out. So it, it really hurts a buyer if a seller takes that position. Now, again, a seller has to be acting in, in good faith too, and they have to act reasonably in doing it. So, um, you know, if, if a seller does suffer damages and they do release the, the deposit back, they still, if they, if they go to court, they can still get a judgment against that buyer and still, and still sue for damages if they haven't provided a mutual release. Yeah, but really important to bear in mind the fact that when you are representing a buyer and you are in these multiple offer situations, you know, one way to protect your buyer is to limit the amount of deposit that you get. So a, a great um, practice is to say, okay, you know, if let, let's say you want to give a $100,000 deposit on a property, right? Then put $100,000 deposit, but in Schedule A, break it up. Say, hey, I'm going to give you $20,000 today and i'm going to give you a further eighty thousand dollars on removal of conditions that way you're at least sure that you're proceeding forward the house is exactly what you thought it is and you're not giving the seller the ability to tie up a hundred thousand dollars from day one if they are suspecting bad faith or if you do want to cancel the contract and the market shifting a little bit and the seller wants to dig in your heels, you're not giving them that level of power over the deposit. Well, that's, that's great advice for any buyer. You know, I assume you can't always get that, especially in a, in a hot market with competing offers right now, but anytime you can do that, I think that's a great way to do it. That's certainly the way on, on commercial transactions that, that things are generally done. It's usually an initial deposit that'll tie up the property for a period of time. There's usually a due diligence period that can be a month to four or five months sometimes on a commercial property for them to go through the process because they might need environmental studies and things like that. And it's not only upon the waiver of condition that, that there's a further deposit or a bigger deposit. So there's a little bit less risk, you know, to the, to the, um, to the buyer there. But if, but on the same principles hold in residential. If you can do a, a two-stage deposit, that's great. You're tying up less money. And I mean, I think that's the whole, uh, you know, that's one of the reasons why we're doing this podcast is so we educate everybody in the industry of, you know, what the pitfalls are, what to watch out for, and, you know, really how to protect the best interests of their clients. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's so important. And, um, you know, having a buyer out there that that's got no money left to put a deposit on the next property right. is, is never a good result for you. And, um, you know, so you, you have to be on top, you have to be providing the, the right advice uh, to your buyer client. Right. And, um, and, and you have to be telling them they, you know, when they, they do have to act in good faith, they have to take steps. If they have a financing condition, if they have an inspection condition, if they have a status certificate condition, they have to go through the process of trying to satisfy those conditions. They can't say, oh, you know, I, I changed my mind. Let's just rely on the, on the financing condition and just not waive it and get out of the deal. 
No, they have to take steps to get their financing approved. If they didn't, and they're, if they're challenged by the seller, they're going to lose if they don't act in good faith. So David, let me ask you this question because a situation comes to mind. Like, let's say that a house is conditionally sold on an inspection and a financing condition. Usually what agents will do is they'll try, like in the normal market, they'll try to get the financing hammered out. And then once the financing is approved, then they do a home inspection condition. Mm -hmm. Would a seller be able to challenge a buyer um, in the odd case that financing fell through and they did not do a home inspection, they tried to cancel the contract? Probably not. If, if they acted properly in trying to get the financing condition approved uh, and there was still time for them to do an inspection and they gave proper notice, they said, look, there's no point in us even doing an inspection because we've been turned down on this first condition, uh, then I think it's game over. As okay. long as they, they did act in good faith, and they actually went through the process of trying to get the financing. Gotcha. Like, there's no reason to incur the cost of an inspection that they know is it doesn't matter what the results inspection because they can't go ahead anyways uh, because they can't get the financing as long as they acted properly in good faith and really provided all the information of the financial institution that really tried to qualify okay now if the seller is suspicious they're gonna they're gonna challenge them on all that and if they didn't really do everything they're supposed to to qualify for the financing and then they didn't even bother to do the inspection it looks like they're not acting in good faith gotcha okay. Is there any language that any uh, the agents can put in the uh, agreement of purchase and sale that compels a seller to release a deposit if uh, if um, the buyer chooses to uh, to cancel the contract? Well, the, the basic language is is about the best that we can do, and that's the type of uh, language that I was referring to before. That it's in the buyer's absolute and unfettered discretion. You know, that type of language, which is what you have in most of your standard condition clauses, and, and you should check it, because um, that pretty much says if they don't waive, they're entitled to the deposit back. And, um, you know, and that's that should be the end of the story. And it is the end of the story unless the seller is suspicious that they weren't acting in good faith. If the seller has reason to believe that they didn't even go through the motions, they didn't even try and find anything. So you, you can't really improve much on, on that standard language. That language works as long as there's this other element of, of good faith. They have to do something. Okay, you can't have a clause on reviewing a status certificate and then never get the status certificate and review it and just say, I'm not happy with this. I'm relying on that clause. Okay, you have to review a status certificate and, and you would probably have to, if you're challenged, you'd have to point out certain things in there that they didn't like. If it was a completely clean status certificate and everything was good and there's no issues, uh, they're not going to get out of that transaction just relying on on great language in that clause. Right. Makes complete sense to me. What about uh, language? Because I I know previously um, our offices worked together on on, drafting language that kind of compels the the buyer to uh, give irrevocable direction to the listing brokerage uh, for certain things to happen with the deposit automatically if uh, there's a breach that occurs is that does that language um, hold yeah it generally holds but but any language like that and you know would hold but 
it's subject, always subject to arguments that could be raised uh, on equitable principles by the, the alleged non-defaulting party. Uh, and again, it just comes back to this bad faith. It should be automatic, okay? The language itself should be good, that if, upon you receiving notice, the, uh, the broker to release the funds and that's the end of the story. Right. Okay. Now, if before they release the funds, the brokerage gets a, a letter from the litigation lawyer acting for the, uh, the seller saying, you know, we got issues here and I know what the language says, but we're going to challenge this in court and don't release the money unless there's a court order, then, then you're, you're sort of stuck as a, as a brokerage. Like now, what do you do? You know, right. so I know you first thing you do is you call me and we, we have a discussion about it, <laughs> but, the, but the advice, you know, you're going to have to lawyer up as well with, a, you know, with a litigation lawyer and you're going to have to take, you're going to try to take mostly a neutral position saying, you know, my hands are tied. I've got the clear language here. They're threatening to go to court. If I release it, it might put our brokerage in jeopardy. You know, what do I do? And at, at that point, it's, you know, you're probably are not in a position to release it, even though on the face of it, you've got clear irrevocable direction to release it. So you, you're more comfortable to wait till you, there is a court order telling you what to do or to pay the money into court. Instead of being in your trust account, you're, you tell the other person, I'm prepared to put the money in court, leave, leave us out of it, okay? Cause you're just the holder of the deposit. So of you holding it, let the court hold it. But it drags you into litigation that you don't wanna be in, right? So even when you have that good language and you should, that's the way it should operate. It should be irrevocable. It should happen automatically. And I would tell you, you know, go ahead. If, if you haven't received a letter from someone threatening litigation telling you not to do it, I would be telling you, go ahead and do it. And you could release it based on that language. But if they, if you do get a letter, all of a sudden you're stuck. Right. And we see a lot of these irrevocable directions in a really, really hot seller's market, right? Buyer is, um, forced or compelled to accept language that they might not otherwise accept just because they want to be successful um, in securing the property in a multiple offer situation. So again, something to really watch out for and pay attention to as a, as a consumer, as an agent, and as a listing agent as well. Yeah. And, and we're always drafting that type of language into extension agreements. And we have a transaction that's being right. extended you know, one of the terms that we want to put in, and not usually for if it's a day or two extension all the time, because, um, you know, we, there has to be a little bit of give and take, but for any lengthier extension, a lot of times we, we want to make conditional on there being an irrevocable direction incorporated right into the language that directs your brokerage, the holder of the deposit, that if we get to April 21st and it doesn't close on that extension date, then then that day, the next day, they should automatically be releasing that deposit money without any without requiring any further documents without requiring release anything like that so again you know we try and build that in and, yeah. and i would tell you go ahead and do that now it, you know if a litigation lawyer sends you a letter it might put the brakes on it yeah and you know what's interesting is that this is fairly new language isn't it? i mean it's not new language but it's a fairly new practice that that people are doing and again it's it's a reflection of what our market is doing up there right if a house was purchased three four months ago by the time we get to the closing date the market has already moved up yeah right so yeah. the seller is in a position that they're able to dictate a lot of these terms trust me if the market was the opposite and was trending downwards 
I, I think, uh, you know, that uh, would never hold water. Well, and that's, you know, that happens all the time. Uh, you know, we're, we're looking at in a market right now where it's hard to determine what's the real fair market price of a property. It's, is it the price that people are paying or is that an unrealistic price from an appraisal point of view? Okay, because the property would have been normally appraised at a million dollars, but all of a sudden there's multi offers and it's sold for a million too. So what's, what's the real value of a property? Yeah, I wouldn't want to be a bank appraiser in this market, you know, and uh, and determine what uh, what the fair market value is in terms of a, a bank from a risk perspective, because um, it, it's really what um, educated buyer and, and a willing seller, you know, what the happy medium is. That's really what the market value is. But it's uh, it, it's you know, it, it's really tough and it, uh, it it poses a lot of problems as well. No, it, it does. And lenders from a risk point of view, they're looking at it. Okay. It may have sold for a million two right now. We're going to lend money on this and six months, a year from now, if that buyer goes into default and we got to resell the property and we're no longer in this hot market and the values come down, uh, you know, did we lend 70% of a million two, but we should have only lent 70% of a million. And if we're going to sell it now for a million, are we going to have trouble recovering all our money with interest and penalties and costs and legal fees and all that? So they're going to be a little bit on the conservative side in terms of what they're willing to lend money. And they want to lend more on appraised value than on the purchase price that the property sold for. So what happens, David, if a buyer purchased a property that doesn't appraise, are they still compelled to, to close that transaction? When they've waived the, the financing condition? Yes, they're in the firm. They the financing condition, uh, all conditions met, but it's still subject to the bank saying, yeah, we're still going to send our guy out there to do a quick appraisal. Don't worry about it. And then they come back after the appraisal is done and, and they appraised it for something substantially less than what the buyer needed to close the transaction. So if they've waived the condition, they have an obligation to close. So now they're scrambling. Now they're calling up all their friends and relatives because that's the advice I would give them. Look, you still got an agreement. You, you waive the condition. You have to close. We've got that closing deadline. That closing date's coming up. You got to find a way to close. So we do one of two things. You, you look for other resources to come up with the money to make up the difference. And your you know, clients are calling their friends and family and borrowing money where they can or selling other assets if they can. Uh, and if they can't, uh, they're not, and they can't close the transaction. They're going to lose their deposit money. They're going to be responsible for any other damages that the seller might, might be entitled to when they resell the property to somebody else. So it's a perilous situation. So we're always advising clients, uh, you know, when they think they've got their financing all done, you know, make sure you look at all the conditions that are in there. Is it conditional on an appraisal? Is it conditional on certain other documents still being provided uh, because don't waive the condition until you know that you've got all of that done. And whatever you do, don't go and buy a new car after you bought a house that's still, you know, that still hasn't closed. Because yeah. if your credit substantially changes or your credit position substantially changes, you know, uh, you can get yourself into a lot of pro um, trouble as well. 
Yeah, no, that's that's true. It's a, it's a moving target. It's it's what day are they taking a look at, at your credit, and what day are they taking are, are they doing an appraisal? Okay. Uh, now agents sometimes can get involved on in the appraisal process. I've seen this uh, you know quite a few times where an appraisal comes in from a lender and it's too low, and the agents go to bat and get in touch with the appraiser and say, you know, you know, maybe you didn't see all this information that I have. Here's some comparables, here's what's going on. This isn't a one-off that it got pushed up. All the properties in this neighborhood have been pushed up. Those prices are not coming down. Look at look at the history of what's gone on. This is, it's not been going on for, this market hasn't been like this for a week or two. This has been going on for a few months and here's all the examples and here's all the comparables. And we have seen appraisers go back and adjust and, and adjust what they're doing. Another thing that agents do sometimes when the appraiser, appraisal comes in too low, if there's enough time, is you get them to another lender and try again. And, um, and sometimes you get a different result with a different lender and a different appraiser looking at a property. Now, excellent points, David. I mean, I, people need to know what their options are and, and even something as simple as uh, going back and having a conversation and, um, you know, it has to be substantiated in fact right? That, your conversation that you have with the appraiser, but mm -hmm. excellent points. I mean, appraisers make mistakes too. They're people. Sometimes they don't have all the facts. Sometimes they're, they're not experts in, in particular neighborhoods and um, they don't understand the local trends of exactly what's happening in that neighborhood. And um, if, if you can give an outstretched chance and help educate and help lead them down the right path, and sometimes that's going to yield a really good result for, uh, for your client. Yeah, and sometimes these appraisals are, are done on a drive-by basis. They're not even really looking at the property. And, uh, and then, but the fact might be, no, you got to come take a look. We have a completely finished, finished basement in this house. The one you're comparing it to that sold for less didn't have a finished basement. We've got a swimming pool in the backyard. The one you're comparing to didn't have a swimming pool in the backyard. Look at all the landscaping. Look at, it's, it had a recent renovation. The one you're comparing to didn't have a recent renovation. Like there are factors. Yeah. Another point I would just make before I forget to do it is, uh, you know, sometimes the institutional appraisers, you know, can't meet the price that they need, but there's a whole market out there for private lending. And that's been a really active business uh, it recently, the private lending market, partly because of these issues where people can't get the financing from the institutions because the values get pushed up. So the private lenders step into the market and they say, hey, we'll do it. We'll give you the money that you need to close this deal. It's gonna cost you more, it's expensive because they charge their lender fees, they're charging a higher interest rate, but you'll get your deal closed, okay? So you're going to private lenders. So, you, so that's what some of our clients are doing too. They will go to a private lender, sometimes for a shorter term mortgage, like they're going for a you know, one-year mortgage, maybe it's open for prepayment. So they can get their deal closed and then they'll use that time to shop around and see how market conditions change. And maybe they can refinance with an institution at a lower rate at some point. So it's expensive, but it's a lot less expensive than, than not closing your transaction and being in breach and losing your deposit money. Or not jumping into the market, right? And seeing on the, on, on the sidelines. Because I mean, when you take a look at what the market has been doing year over year, I mean, we're much higher appreciation than 8%, right? Which is 
what um, a lot of these private mortgages are, are getting anywhere from six to 12% on, on the fees. But even those fees have historically come down just because there's more competition. There's more people um, being active in the private uh, lending space. So I, I'm seeing those rates come down as well. Yeah, more people have jumped into it because there's a need for it. And people have recognized it's one of the busiest growth areas in our law firm right now is, is private mortgage lending. And uh, we recently hired a, another clerk and, and have her dedicated to doing nothing but private mortgage lending right now. And, and she's swamped already. And it's, it's a big growth area in, in what we're doing because um, it's, it's, there, there are different nuances, different things that you have to deal with when you're dealing with private lenders that are different than institutional lenders. So you have to be set up and, and do it properly and it's timely. Every single one of these, we get a commitment in, it's got to close in two days, in three days. Uh, because these are generally people that have gone to the, the financial market, gone through the institutional, they, they think they're getting financing and all of a sudden something happens and they got three or four days before closing and they can't get their financing. So then they turn to the private lenders and they're able to turn these things around and lend the money on two or three days. So that's, we get these commitments in and they're always a rush. Everything's closing in two or three days. So we have to be equipped to handle that. So we've got, you know, dedicated people doing that. It's one of the biggest growth areas in our firm. That's actually amazing. It's it's great to know that if a client is referred to your law firm, that you guys have the tools and resources to help them, not only in a conventional way, but also if if uh, you know push comes to shove, that you're 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 able to help them through those tough situations as well and give them the right guidance. Yeah, and, and we can even refer them and refer the agents to to uh, a few different private mortgage lenders because they can you know do their own shopping around. We've got some. You know, they're all really good, but there's differences in what their rates would be and their timing and who's got funds available and everything. So um, we've got to find a way to get these deals closed. Closing a deal is always better than not closing and, and having deposit monies lost and, and facing lawsuits. So uh, that's what we work together with the agents. We're doing the same thing. We're, we want to get transactions closed. That's always the focus. I think that's a great topic for podcast number three is really what happens when the transaction doesn't close and uh, all the nuances and the legal ramifications and what, uh, um, you know, what happens step by step when a closing date passes and uh, what happens next. I think we'll leave that for topic uh, on our next podcast, just to give you guys a little bit of a, um, foreshadowing as to what the next topic is going to be. I think it's going to be really exciting and a great one. Well, I don't know if you noticed, I'm wearing my, my Conquer COVID shirt today. Um, it's great on you. Thank you. It's, and it's, um, you know, it just, I wear it once, so I just a reminder of what we're dealing with. And how, how do you deal with it on, on a day-to-day -day thing? How are you finding things? We're now like 50, 14, 15 months into this, and you're a business owner trying to run a busy brokerage, and uh, and we have, we're in the middle of a pandemic, and you're a business owner. How you what are you doing? You know, David. Uh, I mean, it just—it's been—it's uh, been really eye-opening the last fifteen months um, on what uh, real estate means to Canadians and how important real estate and how interwoven it it is into their daily fabrics. But 
you know, as a, as a business, we've really pivoted and adapted. I think we did 46 uh, webinars uh, in, uh, in 2020 online. We took all our training from day one. We went from classroom environment to an online learning environment. That's one of the biggest things at Sutton Summit Realty is we really empower our agents with the right tools and education to really be leaders in the industry. Because I think it all starts with training, with support and with information. Um, and uh, we have never been more connected with our agents and our agents have never been more connected with, with their clients. And I remember in the first few months, I think it was just so important just to reach out and, and, and have a connection and, and really teach our agents to do the same with their clients, right? Because everybody's sitting at home, everybody, um, nobody really knew what the world is going to look like. Nobody really knew what the landscape is going to look like. So just the simple fact of reaching out, picking up the phone and saying, Hey, I'm thinking about you and I hope you're staying safe. And, and, you know, one of our agents, Ash Alice, like, I mean, absolutely incredible. He sent out chalk um, for kids to, to like hundreds of clients, right. With like, uh, and he did it on a weekly basis. He had sent out chalk. He sent out this, he sent out groceries and you know, that humanizing factor um, was so important, right? So same with us as business owners. I mean, we, we really st kept connected with our agents. We, we informed them, we communicate, we over communicated what was going on, what we saw in the industry, how we sort of saw business, what they had to do to adapt. And we gave them all the tools uh, to really do that in a, in, a, in a big way. Well, that's fabulous. And, you know, Ash Alice is a guy always thinking out of the box. Good for him. He's that's incredible. Great. And, and that's great. And it's, it's, it's amazing. You know, I look at it like, how, how lucky are we, David? You and I have talked about this before. We're in a pandemic, but we're in but we've been considered essential services to allow our businesses to stay open and operate. And we were a year ago, we were going through that uncertainty. Are they going to shut us down too? And friends and businesses that have been shut down and it's way harder. Like it, this is tough enough for everybody to deal with while you're able to, to be in business. And it's been a, it's been a huge challenge, but I, I can tell you, I, I, I couldn't be prouder of my staff. And everybody like it's unbelievable how everybody has pulled through this and, and I know everybody's dealing with emotional issues and, and it gets to everybody it's on some level like how can it not no matter how you're dealing with it, it it affects everybody and we talk about that in our in our staff meetings and we try and talk about that you know privately if we see someone you know needs a little bit of, of help or something but bottom line is everybody has been staying safe everybody in our office is staying safe we, we learned how to work remotely. We have some people rotating, rotating into the office. So we, we keep our offices open. So there's always some people there, but never to the point where we're going to jeopardize anybody's safety or to make anybody that is there feel uncomfortable. But we made sure that everybody can work remotely. And fortunately, we're in an industry that we can, we can do that. So number one, we keep everybody safe. Number two, we try and keep everybody on even keel. And, and part of it is, is being busy. Being busy is the best distraction against the pandemic. You know, it's it really helps, right? Yeah. I always say to all my agents, listen, if you're going through a tough situation, uh, jump into your work, right? Because it's gonna it's gonna help take your mind off of things and exactly. it's gonna focus. 
Exactly. Right, but uh, I think you nailed it on the, on the head. I mean, safety is, is is number one. It goes without saying. Um, you know, we, we have to take steps uh, to pre protect our clients and to protect our staff and to protect all our agents. And, um, you know, the industry has really changed. You know, realtors don't drive in the same car with their clients. You know, you have to wear uh, personal protection equipment when you're out showing properties. Um, we've even gone as far to recommend to our agents to put cameras in, in properties, right? As the listing agent to protect your sellers. And, you know, the camera is there to ensure that whoever is showing the house has the right uh, personal safety equipment on. And, and more important that, you know, it's smaller groups of people, like you only two people in um, with the agent at a time. Everybody needs to be safe. You know, you can't touch as many things inside a seller's home anymore. So you have to take steps to protect your clients um, and, and, and yourselves and, and the staff. And, you know, we, we, we really over communicated all those things at the very beginning and, and continue to communicate those things to our agents. Um, and then they're really important. If you want to be an essential business, right? Um, sometimes it's the one that ruins it for everybody. Like there was a case in Toronto uh, a couple months ago, unfortunately, where um, a house was listed with tenants and one of the tenants was positive for COVID and, and, and they continued showings and, you know, it, it made headline news and things like that cannot happen under any circumstances. You know, I think the safety of, of the public, the safety of, of people is far more important than uh, getting a sale um, or, or doing a deal. Right. So uh, we really, really communicate that fact to our agents and, you know, we have very, very high standards of our agents. Um, you know, we were the first to cancel open houses even before the boards uh, suggested canceling open houses. Um, so, so things like that, you just really have to be mindful of. Yeah, and, and the good news in the industry is, you know, that example that you gave is a rare example because very if that rare. was happening, very rare. And the government would have shut the industry down and say, you know, no more, you know, going into other people's houses, and we got to. You know, if that was looked at as being a source of contamination, but it's absolutely not. It's there's protocols that, that your industry has put in place, and they can show houses, and people can see houses, and um, and and put these offers in, and we can get things closed, and we do video conferencing, and we've all adapted, and it's and it's uh, we were fortunate that we're in this industry where we can make a living. And employ other people and uh, and make people happy by being able to be part of the process for them moving up in the world and buying their first home buying their second home downsizing when they're ready etc and, and at least that part of life has continued and it's continuing in a big way people are looking at it even more so because of the COVID. they're looking for those changes they want to live in the place that they really want to live in they've analyzed that so that's why we're in such a an active market. We got to keep it going. People have spent so much time in, in, in their house, right? That and then they felt so connected to the home where you know they're very very quickly were able to determine whether it's the right house for them. And in a lot of situations, because of the amount of time the kids are at home, the wife is at home, you're trying to do work from home. Um, it might not be the right house, right? So that's why we're seeing people are going out there and they're just more connected to their home now more than ever. 
Yeah. I know we're getting short on time, but one yeah. thing I want to really uh, jump into is business development through uh, through COVID. And uh, the one thing we really uh, have been telling our agents is that, you know, people have been spending a little bit more time on their devices just because um, there really isn't much to, to do out there. So it's easier to get people's attention on social media and online now more than ever. At least that's what we're finding. So um, don't be afraid of posting. Don't be afraid of really engaging with your audience. Um, but the key is to have engaging posts, I think. But the, the attention is definitely there. Well, we're seeing that as well. We have a, a, you know, a reasonably good presence in social media. We get great feedback uh, from it, from, from doing webinars and, and posting blogs. And now we're doing this podcast and uh, it, it all helps um, you know, from a business point of view for business development. And um, you know, I, I encourage uh, you guys and your agents to be out there doing the same thing. And they've got to have some good content, connect with good content, et cetera. And it, uh, it, getting your name out never hurts. Absolutely. And make sure you tune in for podcast number three with the David and David on real estate. Excited. We got some good topics for next week. Amazing topics. We'll see you guys next time. Have a great productive week, everybody. And thank you for tuning in. Thanks, everybody. Stay safe. Stay safe.